0: But it wasn't until I came out of Apple that I realised this blokiness wasn't just within IT. It was everywhere. And that Australia was behind so many other countries. I mean, I expected us to be behind the US, but I didn't expect us to be behind the UK, New Zealand, and South Africa. If you look at the five major English-speaking countries, we are bottom of the barrel in terms of women in senior positions.
1: Welcome to the Sam Gash Podcast. These are conversations with trailblazers, rule breakers and those who pave their own lane and venture boldly into the unknown. By entering this uncharted arena, they inevitably stumble, yet they all display an inability to innovate and contribute even when the odds are not in their favor. We skip over their highlights reel and go into the guts of who they are and what they believe in. I'm your host, Samantha Gash, and I'm an endurance athlete, a former corporate lawyer, and a social impact entrepreneur. It is my absolute privilege to create the space for these guests. If you found these conversations to be of value or have any feedback, please subscribe, rate, and review, and I hope you enjoy. Today's guest is Diana Ryle, who is passionate and a vocal advocate for gender equality, diversity and inclusion in the workplace. From 1997 to 2001, Diana was the Managing Director of Apple Australia. She was the first woman in Australia to lead an IT company. With Diana at the helm, Apple went on to win the Hewitt Associate Annual Employer of the Year Award. In 2010, Diana became a member of the Order of Australia for her significant contribution to the education community, her commitment and support to the advancement of women and her ongoing and wide-reaching charitable work. Her shift away from Apple connected to her recovery from breast cancer and the insight that she needed to focus on herself and her family. During this space, she established and managed her own company, Explore for Success, which still continues today, where she has worked with more than 15,000 women on issues related to resilience and leadership. she is a speaker, writer, and board member to many philanthropic organizations in the diversity and climate change arena. She states, I want to challenge all Australians to embrace equality, better understand personal bias, think differently about diversity, and support all people to achieve their goals. And she has certainly done this through example. This conversation showcases Diana's journey from school teacher to in the Department of Education to coding into leading Apple. It also is a pack a punch in terms of giving insights specifically to women in the workforce. In fact, I feel this is the podcast that gives the most insights that are going to be tangible takeaways for people. She discusses how you should apply for a job, even when you don't fulfill all the job criteria. And in fact, she says that those are the jobs that you actually need to go for. We discuss how to go for internal promotion, how to seek pay parity, how to communicate your value and worth, and how to overcome discrimination. This has been a powerful conversation for myself. I know that you are going to gain much from it, and I hope you enjoy. Well, let's just kick it off. Um, I do first want to say that I'm really delighted to have the opportunity to speak to you. You've been this outstanding change agent for gender equality and inclusion throughout your career, you know, specifically at the beginning with the lens of increasing the advancement for women. Uh, and that has obviously evolved throughout the years. And I can't wait to touch into, you know, what your experiences were like at Apple and why you initially founded Explore for Success and and how that evolved. Um, but my husband told me last night as I was telling him I was going to be speaking to you today. And he said that your son, Peter, gave him uh, an Apple-branded pocket knife from an Apple conference that I think you got for him um, a couple of years ago. And I don't know if you know the background, but uh, my husband and, and your son both served as peacekeepers in East Timor together.
0: Yes, I was aware uh, of
1: that. Yeah, and it made me kind of think. Um, and, and knowing Pete, I couldn't help but wonder, Was it really important for you as a mother to share that value of service with your children?
0: I was really passionate about the boys finding what they wanted to do that would make a difference and would make them happy at work. There was certainly never any pressure in our house that they had to take a job that earned a lot of money, whether it was specifically service Pete was always interested in cadets from high school and I'm actually quite a strong pacifist, so
1: Mm.
0: I did have some concerns and I was delighted that his service in Timor was very much about peacekeeping rather than heavily into fighting. So, But for Pete, he is just passionate about those things and he's very different to Scott. And I think that what I certainly wanted for my children was that they had a broad range of experiences so that they could find the experiences that would fill their, fulfill them in their lives.
1: When you um, had your boys and they were young, were you working at that time?
0: I'd started working at the Department of Education and then I got pregnant with Scott And I really decided that a government role was probably not an ideal balance for me. I'm innovative and creative and if there are barriers, I'm inclined to work around them. And so Mm. the structure and procedures of working in the Department of Education, I found that you could see things that needed to be done and you couldn't necessarily get them done. So I knew when I had Scott that I wasn't going to go back to the job in the Department of Education. And so then I had some decisions about what I would do and I really smile now that what I decided to do was to go back and do my Master of Education at Sydney University And I started back there at the very date Scott was due and (laughs) I shake my head and think what on (laughs) earth would make you think that you could go back and do a master's degree with a brand-new baby. But I had lecturers who were very broad-minded for that time because this is 75 and they supported me in every way that they could and Scott came to lectures with me and if he was noisy, I would take him out but a lot of the time he spent sleeping in his basket. I then did some part-time work at TAFE. I did some fill-in work at high school teaching which was my original role. And of course, then I had Pete nearly three years later and really I didn't get into back into the workplace until uh, Pete was about three. So, mm. uh, yeah, I did some odds and ends and I kept up with my work on the degree and I kept up with some part-time work, but it wasn't seriously my career. And then one of the good things about taking leave around children is it gives you an opportunity to stop and reflect and say, well, what do I really want to do?
1: Yeah, did that time as having, you know, two young boys, you know, you've been working as a teacher, you got your master's, with that space, um, not that, I mean, that space gets filled very quickly, but obviously it's not in the workforce. What were the thoughts that you had about the role that you wanted to play in the workforce?
0: I'd had an opportunity, I started out as a teacher, and when I got married and we moved to the US, They wouldn't let me teach because I wasn't a citizen, which I found confronting. And so we were at Penn State University, which is really a university town. And I knew that if I couldn't work in the high school, then it was either retail or the university. So I went around various departments within the university to seek any kind of employment at all. And I found a role within the Department of Education writing computer-assisted learning. Now, this was very, very early in 68. And they said, well, no one's got the skills, so why don't you start and if you get the hang of it, you get to keep the job. So I did that for a little over a year and I learned a lot about computer programming. I went back and did some postgraduate courses at the university and then we moved to Canada, and because I'd had experience in computing, the year after we arrived in Canada, they wanted to introduce computer science into year 11 and 12 students, so I had the opportunity of taking that role, which was really exciting. There were no textbooks, there were no examinations, there was no curriculum, so it was really green fields, total open spaces to what I did with these very bright Year 11 and 12 students. And that really triggered my interest in computer science and what it could do. We moved to another town in Canada and I continued. So I had, by the time I came back to Australia, I had nearly four years of computer science and when I got back to Australia, Uh, They weren't teaching computer science in schools at all, which is how I ended up applying for a job in the Department of Education. So having decided I wasn't going back into schools and that I wasn't going back into the Department of Education, I really had to think about what did I really want to do. And I was passionate. I'd done quite a bit of coding as part of my roles and teaching coding But I didn't really want to do that. My fascination was how technology was going to change our entire culture. And so I would kind of sit there wondering how am I going to get back into this, what's happening, because there wasn't a lot happening in Australia at that time. And a small ad appeared in the paper for a full-time hotline systems engineer, so I applied and sent him my CV, and I got an interview. And when I got in there, I said, "Actually, I don't. I'm full time. I'm <laughs> certainly not a systems engineer, and I don't <laughs> want to do hotline work. But let me tell you what I've been doing." And he called me back and said, "Well, you won't get that job, obviously, but we have got a training room, and we'd love you to come in and offer training courses to people. that could be business. that could be education." on how to use computers uh, in a productive way. So that was my strong start into IT. I had no particular qualifications in IT. I had a Bachelor of Science in Maths and Stats, and I had a Diploma in Education. So I look at it and I think what a fortunate time it was. And when young women speak to me, I say, Look for areas of growth. Look for places where there aren't masses of qualified people because you'll get more opportunities. Things grow quickly. You get more opportunities to be promoted and people aren't as um, hesitant about you not having 10 or 20 years' experience. So that was kind of my entree and that company was called Electronic Concepts and had the distribution rights for Apple in Australia before Apple came into Australia. And then a couple of years later, Apple arrived in Australia and I transferred my role over there and started at Apple as an eight to 10 hour a week trainer on Apple products. So was right at the bottom.
1: Oh my goodness. There's a, there's a lot about that that I'm thinking. And the first thing is when you were looking at that job description and there was a lot of things that you didn't tick in the boxes of, I don't want to work full time. I don't particularly have the skill sets that they're asking for me to have. What made you feel still compelled to give it a try? Because I a lot of women that I speak to, um, and, you know, there's a lot of studies that women feel that in a job application they need to tick all the boxes Where versus, you know, more men will be like, oh, I have three out of seven of the qualifications, let's just give it a try.
0: So there weren't many IT jobs for a start and my view is you break up what you want into small goals. And My first goal was to get in front of the guy, you know, And so you put in your CV and you express enthusiasm and, you know, that you really want to talk and you want to have this opportunity, you know, that you're really interested in the role. And I find I agree with you totally. There's lots of research that shows women feel like tick at least eight or nine of the points, preferably the whole lot, I have had someone a man who came into one of our courses as a presenter, and he said the lowest I've ever been was I had about twenty to thirty percent of the mandatory requirements and he said then I just spoke yeah. to friends about the vocabulary, the language, I googled i you know I just got myself up to speed that I could. Although I couldn't show experience, I could show uh, a passion and enthusiasm to learn and to be a part of the project or the job or whatever it is. And I think a lot of women do sell themselves short. I mean, if you've got 100% of the qualifications, the job is probably not a stretch. Yeah. And it's the same thing on promotion if you're within the organisation, if someone offers you something that you can say, yes, yes, I can do that, I can do that, uh, what are you going to learn in that new role? You know, it's not different enough. And that doesn't mean you always have to climb upwards. But, you know, each job should be broadening, deepening your skills, whether it's skills in leadership or skills in creativity, whatever it is, but a new role should be a component of it, kind of 40% of it should be, wow, I'm learning, this is exciting, this is, you know, I'm moving forward, now I've got new things that I know and I can offer when I want the next role.
1: Yeah, and do you think when they're applying for the job, you know, men or, you know, female or or a man, and they don't have the certain qualifications that are listed in the job description, do you think they need to own that in the interview Um, and say, like, this is, like, where my limit is, but this is my growth potential?
0: Giving a totally balanced scorecard puts you in a really weak position because the men you're up against won't do that. I've always said to people when they go in for their performance review, I did it once. I went in with a balanced scorecard and said, I've done this and, you know, I've exceeded in this area and because I was doing that, I didn't get around to doing this. And what did I get? A middle-of-the-range grade. And I knew that other people who got better grades and therefore better increases had not achieved as many things as I had. So I say that it is... You don't want to lie in an interview, but stress what you can do, what you know, and your passion to learn and excitement at the opportunity. If they zero in and say, what about this, then you can't say, yes, I've got all that experience, but you can say something like, this is one of the attributes of the role that made me apply because it's an area I really wanted to build my skill set. So I'm looking forward to learning and I've already done some background work and, in fact, I've identified a short program that, you know, I can do online. Mm. So all of these things that say, yeah, no, I don't have that but I'm going to be great for you to have as part of the team because I'm going to learn, I'm going to get up to speed and I'm going to bring new thinking.
1: Do you think your time in the States helped you grow that ability of, you know, self-promotion and advocating for what you do know and presenting it in a way that's quite compelling? I think the time in the States certainly uh, had a huge impact on me
0: because at the time I went through university, I took a teacher's college scholarship because honestly, that's what I thought I'd be doing. And so you didn't apply for a job. You didn't really apply for the scholarship because that was based on your grades. So when I got to the US and had to pitch what I could bring, it was the first time I had ever pitched myself. So I certainly, that was huge learning for me. So there's also the fact I think that in the US they are much more confident in expressing their strengths And, of course, then we moved to Canada and I had to do the same thing again. I had to front up to the high school and, you know, make an appointment with the principal, come in and say, you know, basically I want a job, I'll do anything. And my first job at that (laughs) school was teaching phys ed and health and it was a maternity leave gap uh, for six months and quite seriously... I had no idea what I was gonna do with that <laughs> job role. But yeah. yeah, the principal said, look, I've watched you doing some you know, temporary teaching. Are uh, you good with the students? Uh, we've got lots of people around who'll help you. The classes are year eleven and twelve, they you know but I was was a bit of a shock at the age of about twenty one or twenty twenty-two probably. Only been married for a year. I was teaching sex education to 18 year olds, and I think (laughs) some of them knew a hell of a lot more than I did. (laughs) So I did learn because I, at that stage, I was definitely following Bill and following him from his job to the next job. It put me out of my comfort zone. It was very difficult, and it certainly brought me back to Australia with a lot more confidence to say what I wanted and a lot more uh, commitment to reflecting on what I did want because if you'd asked me a few years earlier I would have said I'll become a teacher then I guess I'll teach at a couple of schools maybe I'll become a maths you know the head of a maths department but I would have just assumed that the whole progression and promotion would be Really, out of my hands, it would just happen around me. Yeah. And the five years that we spent in the US and Canada taught me that that's that's not the way to think about your career, that you really have to think about. First thing I say to a woman who's thinking of leaving is give me three columns The column of all the things you love to do. You go to work every day. What are all the components you love about your job role? On the other side, what are all the things you hate about your job role? And what are the things that you just know you've got to do in a job role and it's okay because you believe that'll come with any job you take? And then you look how much of your time, because I've done a lot of work on the strengths area, how much of your time are you spending with the things that you love doing. Like I don't like being cornered in an office without the ability to go out and brainstorm with others, get out and about. That's one of the things that makes me feel good. So when we look at our last three months, the thing I found most difficult was not the actual coffee But the cups of coffee where you sit and talk about whether it's current affairs or whether it's new opportunities and all of those things are things that matter to me. Yeah. Whereas for other people there may be other parts of the job role that are actually a lot more important. And I think that explains that I came out of Apple, knew I didn't want to go to any other IT company or a software company and made me stop and think about, well, what's a different way of having the opportunity to meet with others, have the opportunity to help others. I mean, I can remember helping people with their mathematics right back in high school. So I've always been that kind of mentor helper. And certainly my time in Apple People ask what was the best thing, what was I most proud of during the time I was head of Apple Australia. And really it was when we were awarded the Employer of the Year Award and we had an engagement level of 90%. Of course I wanted to have good business. Of course I wanted to hit the goals that we had. But really the fact that 90% of the staff felt they were important to Apple Australia, loved coming to work and felt part of a culture that supported them to grow and supported them in their lives was the thing that gave me the greatest joy. So when I came out, it really was a matter of looking at what are the other things that I could do that would put me in those situations. So Explore came out of that. Really women were having very difficult times. They came through school doing very well. They came through university doing very well. And yet once they got into the workplace, within five years, uh, their equivalent men were going ahead and the women were really not in childbearing. You know, childbearing age has changed. When I came out of university, most people had kids before 25 and then there was a phase of 25 to 30 and most women now are more likely to have their first child 30 plus, not too much plus, otherwise they have other problems. But, you know, I just found that some of the things you're talking about, that they didn't have the confidence, they didn't put themselves forward Yeah, the kind of thing that happens is someone puts out an email to a group in the staff and says, we've got this great new project starting. Um, Come back to me if you're interested in being on the team. And they noted that most of the people who came back were men because men saw it as something that was important to the company, something new, different, interesting, And the women were kind of weighing up, well, I can't do everything that that project needs. Well, if you need a team, it's because different people are going to bring diverse skills. So it's like put your hand up. If you get in the lift with the CEO and he says, how's it going, don't just stand there like a blob and say, oh, fine, or I'm really busy. You know, think of something that you could say the last six months I've been working on this project, it's been so exciting to see what we could do. You know, have 20 words that you can say to someone important that says, yeah, I, I'm alive, alert, and I'm looking for new opportunities. So that was where Explore really came from, and it's grown a lot from then. We just started with one or two programs. The very first start was I took a room at YWCA, I supplied wine, cheese and biscuits and I sent out an email to all my friends, mainly my age, and said, if you know anyone who's kind of 25 to 40 and they'd like to come along to this information the evening, can you please send it out? And lo and behold, I ended up with 35 people in the room and 24 of them wanted to sign up And in true sales fashion, I'd written the slides, the PowerPoint presentation, (laughs) but no background to it. So that was really motivational for me because I had to develop the content I'd promised and that required me to get into a learning mode and I just loved that. It's like with the lockdown, I've really enjoyed learning about Zoom. I wouldn't say I am the expert, but I'm very competent with Zoom. And, you know, I wouldn't have looked at Zoom otherwise. So my next one is Chrome because my granddaughters (laughs) use it
1: all the time. It's so funny because at the beginning of this conversation, you were saying that um, when you were in the US that you knew there was going to be a point very soon where technology and human interaction was going to start to explode. And, you know, obviously since then it, in Australia and globally, it's exponentially done so. And it's at a very, very rapid rate. But let's, let's kind of go back to your time at Apple because you said that you start at the very bottom, you know, in terms of the hierarchy of the, the, the jobs. How did that trajectory kind of change? rise throughout the 20 years I mean obviously I knew over the last from 1997 to 2001 you were managing director you know the first female IT managing director in Australia which is you know absolutely incredible and I want to know about that but I want to know about that rise and the, the changing of the roles and the evolution of your interests in that company.
0: So Apple was very small when I transferred over and i transferred over doing in-service programs for teachers at schools so my very sexy job was get to the office really early pack up six apple IIes es with their disk drives and screens into the back of the station wagon drive to a school anywhere around sydney unpack them set them up run an in-service course for the day pack them all up again, take them back to the office and leave them there. So that was the calibre of my job but it was exciting because I was working with often teachers from multiple different schools and talking about how to take computing beyond teaching basic programming mm. and how things like word processes and spreadsheets were going to make a difference To how they could teach maths or how they could teach English. And so that was that. Then I realized there were a lot of programs available uh, that you could use in a classroom, but there was no nice neat directory. So I started in my spare time and I typed up the entire software directory, and that would have been. Eighty-five, I guess and we published it and we sent it out to schools free of charge because Apple was trying to gain more inroads into the sales of computers into schools. So with that I kind of evolved into a marketing arm as well and so then we'd start mail outs and newsletters out to schools. So I became the K-12, the school's marketing manager, and then that evolved because so much of that was also about selling, although I didn't want sales on my card. So then I became, you know, looking after sales and marketing for all of our school business, and there was someone else looking at university business. And then that grew because Apple sales into education, schools and universities, was about half of our revenue then. So I was responsible for quite a bit of revenue. And then gradually, the woman who was running the university one left, so I took over that part as well. And then... I took over the whole education, sales, and marketing, and that allowed me to have other people in sales and in marketing. So by 92 or 3, I guess, I was responsible entirely as the director of education and totally responsible for all of our activity to encourage educators to use Apple products as opposed to other products yeah you know, I'd do I'd do the tender documents I'd speak at conferences I would work with university people in the IT departments so that that kind of grew into that role then um, then I had a very interesting time which would have been about 94 where we had a division looking after education, which was mine, and a v- division looking after business, which was another guy. So he had corporate, small business, etc. And it was a nice, easy division. And the CEO, who I would say wasn't a keen supporter of strong women, Uh, decided to combine the two divisions and he decided that the guy running business should run it. Mm. So he took a rather interesting way of telling me that. I was over at a major conference of universities for Australia and New Zealand. He flew into New Zealand Uh, claimed that the only time he could talk to me was basically in the hour before I was doing the closing address and in that he told me that I didn't have the job. So, and then I went and did the closing address. So it was a rather difficult time.
1: You know, it's obviously like political power play by coming to, you know, confront you with that information just before you have to be on representing, you know, the company at that point in a very public setting. You know, what do you think he was hoping to achieve by doing it then as opposed to back in the office or uh, on more neutral ground?
0: I don't think he personally liked me because I would call out things that weren't fair. I I was doing really well and the person heading the other division was definitely his uh, favoured employee. So he wanted to hit me hard. I think he probably hoped I'd leave and part of me was ready to leave but I came back to Australia and Bill and I spent quite a bit of time with some red wine. (laughs) <laughs> and he'd offered me a more junior role reporting to the um, marketing director who was a guy that was generally poorly respected and he said he would keep the same salary and I could keep the same, uh, no, he didn't say that at first, I could keep the same salary but I would report into to the marketing director. Mm. And... I was able to use some connections I had in the US to get some more insight top down on him and it appeared that a number of the things he was doing the US wasn't happy with and you know maybe he wouldn't be there for a very long time and I decided however bad it was I was going to give it six months. And so for six months, you know, I moved out of my office. I moved into a, you know, normal uh, little cube that you had. And I reported in the marketing director whose first message to me was, I define the strategy, you'll do as you're told. And I just decided I could hang in there for six months. And the CEO, just to make things worse, used to pop by my office and say, how's the new role going? (laughs) Um, Just just a little uh,
1: kick in the guts every now and again.
0: (laughs) Every so often a kick in the guts. The marketing director, every so often a kick in the guts. What I didn't realise was that my team, which numbered about 15 around Australia, wrote a letter to the US explaining why this was a bad idea and how poorly it had been done and how our education customers felt about it. And they all signed it. They didn't tell me because they knew I would say don't do it because it could have put their jobs at risk. And they sent it off to the US, to the head of Asia Pacific. And I think that probably was the nail in the coffin for the CEO. Now of course it filtered back through the top group of Apple in Australia and they were furious and they thought that I had orchestrated it but I had not orchestrated it and they didn't tell me because they knew I would say don't do it it's too dangerous for your careers. So the CEO left and we had a replacement CEO from the US who came in and said, Di, I just want you to keep doing what you're doing and keep me informed on what's going on and make sure I know what the education market needs while we look for a new CEO. Now, I've got to admit I took a deep breath and talk about being a, a stirrer. I applied for the CEO role. yep uh of course I didn't get it I knew I wouldn't get it but I wanted them to know that I this had been a mistake to demote me and that I was still very keen on my career
1: Do you feel like that places, you know, doing something like that, even if you don't believe that you're going to get it at that time, you know, places some intention of, you know, your uh, ambition, your desire to be committed to the company uh, and where you feel you can grow? Absolutely. And I say to
0: women, when they apply for a job internally, remember, you know, don't apply for a job you wouldn't even be remotely interested in. But when you apply, there is this whole thing that you have given a message that your career and career progression matters. When you don't get it, you can go back and ask, can you uh, clarify why I wasn't suitable for the role? And you can then ask for career development uh, opportunities so that you'll be ready for a similar role when it comes up. So it's a whole mind shift for the people in the step above you that, you know, you're not coming to work every day to do the same thing every day. You're coming to work and you have career aspirations. And a lot of women don't give that message, you know, that, yeah, yeah they're they're doing a good job now, they're really happy to do this good job now, but they're inclined to give external message oh yes I'm happy well if they are happy that's great but if they do have further aspirations they've got to find ways of making sure that others understand that
1: but how did you say, like, because I'm similarly inclined to you and some people would consider that, you know, might consider it strong woman. Others might say it's disruptor, um, that it creates unease with other people because you're not just saying what other people want to hear. You know, you know, in the late 1990s, how was that signalling from a woman um received by other people i mean i understand it wasn't received particularly well by the the previous ceo but what about your other colleagues
0: well the previous ceo was going out the door and he had surrounded himself with yes people so like the marketing director the finance director you know a whole lot of them the sales director they would have been absolutely furious and I knew that I wouldn't get the support I'd need. Yep. But you have to say what's the worst that can happen, you know, and I always look at it that way. What, what is the worst that can happen and are you prepared to put up with that? So I didn't get the job. They brought in a guy, Steve Amos, who came from IBM and none of us could believe it because he arrived in his pinstripe suit and apparently in the first two weeks he nearly put out a clean desk policy which would have gone down like a lead balloon in apple but he was fabulous within a year all the yes people had gone because he didn't like working with yes people he liked working with people who challenged his thinking had ideas took responsibility So the marketing director left, the financial director left, the sales director left, the head of tech support left. Basically there was no one from the exec team there in 12 months' time. And he took me aside and he gave me two very strong kind of communications. He said, There are people, a number of people in Apple who are scared of you. I'm a direct communicator and sometimes I forget to soften things. So I don't necessarily say, hey, Sam, did you have a good weekend? And he said, you've really got to look at your communication style so that more people don't see you as a threat. And one of the things I learned was, I really start to watch what did I say to people. So if I went into someone who is working on a project, my natural style is to say, how's the project going? If someone is a little hesitant, if you're more senior, their natural assumption is she thinks it's not going too well and they're inclined to move into a defensive mode. All I had to do was change and say either I'm writing a report or I've got a phone call into to the US tomorrow or later this week. Can you give me an update on how that project's going? And all of a sudden you get a different response.
1: Can we explore that softening um, concept a little bit further? Because do you think that's something that he would have said if he was speaking to a, a, a male counterpart who also had a quite a direct direct style of communication. Do you think the advice to that person would have been, you know, you just need a little bit be a little bit softer with the team to be well received? Actually, I think he would. Okay. He's
0: the only person that I've ever worked for that I would say was gender blind. Okay. So yeah, most other people I would say no, it could have been a gender specific thing. But in this case, it wasn't. And it wasn't so much about softening. He just said, you've really got to look at why are people scared of you? And it really came through. I had a wonderful executive assistant who could well have been the CEO. And I was able to talk to her about it. She stayed with me when I was demoted. She said she didn't want to go with one of the other directors. She decided to stay with me. And so I was able to really find out that his feedback was right. Mm. The other piece of feedback he gave me, which was also right, was he said, Di, it's okay to be wrong. It's okay to not know the answer. It's okay to say, can I get back to you? And I'd been under so much pressure, and a lot of women feel this, to be perfect. Everything has to be perfect. Anyone, if you're ever found not to know something, um, you know, that means a total failure. But nobody knows everything. So he said, You know, if you're having a problem with something, come and talk to me about it. And the thought of being able to go to my managing director and say I've been working on this and it's just not working, have you got any ideas, was totally so far out of what I'd experienced at Apple previously. It was like a huge shock but a really nice shock. It's something... He moved on and he went to nine MBN. not NBN, nine MSN. What was it called? Yeah, MSN. And he was extremely well respected there as well. And then he moved to Microsoft. And if you looked at Microsoft Australia at that time, oh, he went to, he went to Asia Pacific first, that's right, a bit out of order, but he ended up at Microsoft and he put in two females as managing directors of Microsoft in Australia. When he left Microsoft Australia and went to Microsoft uh, Asia Pacific, there was Pip Marlow who's now well-known around the place and the other one, whose name refuses to come, but we'll come back later, uh, has been the CEO of realestate.com. So he put in two women. He hired one of them when she was five months pregnant. He put two women in as MDs. He took one of them up to Asia Pacific with a promotion and both of them have thrived after they left Microsoft. So he took the view that... I needed to grow beyond education and learn a whole lot of different things. And when I look at that time that I reported to him in Australia, it was amazing because I did learn an awful lot. I became very aware of how I operated with other people and I stopped believing that I had to know the answer to absolutely everything. He then moved up to Asia-Pacific and I stayed with his his direct team and they put a general manager into Australia. Um, And, you know, I got to visit many other Asian countries and look at how their business models differed from ours. I just loved that time. You know, I went to Korea, I went to China, I went to Japan, Hong Kong, Singapore, India and doing business development and that was a really exciting time. And then the job in Australia came vacant and I said, oh, Steve, I'm really enjoying what I'm doing up in Asia Pacific. I'm not going to apply for the job so I can sit on the panel with you and, you know, that'll give you someone else who knows the Australian market really well. Anyway, we got down to a short list of two and on a Friday afternoon where we were going to make the decision about which one, he said, Di, I think you'd be better than both of them. Go home this weekend, <laughs> think about it, and come back and tell me if you're going to take the job. It was the long weekend after the long weekend. And I really sat there and thought, right, I've enjoyed what I'm doing in Asia Pacific, but what I miss is the opportunity to really be involved in projects and see where they go to. So I came back and said to him, yeah, I'd like to take it. And so that was my interview procedure for Managing Director of Apple Australia and I loved it. I loved the fact that uh, I had a reasonable amount of autonomy. I was able to really take my own philosophy, which is people need to grow and develop. You know, you can't just leave them sitting where they are. So as it was very blokey, as you'd imagine. And I had a guy from sales who moved in to be our marketing director and he pitched me really solidly and said, Di, you don't need a marketing creative guru. You need someone who can bring the team together. We've got plenty of creatives. You just need someone who loves the people and brings it all together. And eventually, after two rounds of pitching... I you know, I said to him, okay, but I need to talk to the other people on the exec team. And when I spoke to them, he'd done a really good job of lobbying all the other people I was likely to ask. And so he got the job and he was great. And when I got breast cancer, he was the one I job-shared with. And when I stepped down because I decided to put a little more balance in my life, he was the one who got the CEO job, you know, the managing director job. So, you know, I felt really good about that. Here was someone I had absolutely mentored up the line and into the top position.
1: Yeah, there's definitely a couple of things that come for me out of that. You know, the, the first thing is you obviously decided to stay even when um, the situation that you had been placed in with the demotion uh, in a not in a toxic situation as well. You decided to ride it out for six months. And I think there's a lot of people who if you know, there will be some people who just stay for way too long when things aren't great, but there's always the the contrary as well that sometimes people leave the moment it doesn't work to the way that they want it. And I think it's it's a great piece of advice of, you know, putting a time limit on um to see how something's going to play out before making a reactive emotional decision. And the next thing is obviously changing, you know, you can't stick in the same paradigm um, if you want to kind of rise up the ranks as well. You actually have to put yourself into different um, roles and responsibilities in an organisation to test out your understanding of the company as a whole.
0: Absolutely. I mean, it's really bad form, I think, when someone tells you that you get some bad feedback that you just throw in the towel you need time because you're exactly right the first thing is a very visceral emotional response
1: Mm.
0: I've been hurt I've been wounded I've got to get out of there can you imagine the embarrassment and I certainly did find it embarrassing but You have to stop and think, and I didn't want to go and work for Microsoft and I didn't want to work for IBM. And so you looked around and that kind of helped when I left Apple, you know, years later. I was very clear I didn't want to work for another computer company. There was Apple, we always affectionately said, we weren't just leading edge, we were bleeding edge, you know, things. (laughs) When Steve Jobs came back and brought out the first iMac, with no floppy drive and just a CD drive. Everyone was just like, well, how do you save anything? What do you do? Well, you know, you take a floppy drive out and you give it to someone else and then they put it in their machine. And he said, oh, they'll all be networked. And that was true. I mean, that's how things happened. But it wasn't where we were at the time. Networking wasn't very strong then. So, you know if you've worked in a company like Apple, which is innovative, creative, and exciting, there was no way I would have gone back to something that was much more steady. You know, Microsoft products were always kind of after the Apple system software with taking many of the key things that Apple had developed and Possibly making them better at times, but yeah, you know, they were never first to market. We were first to market with a laser Rider printer. We were first to market with a Mac that had different fonts and could handle graphics. We were first to market with video on the screen. So Apple was a first to market company, and how can you go somewhere else? So if you get into a really difficult situation, you talk to other people and you give yourself time to think about it. I didn't lose money. I didn't lose my executive assistant. Uh, I just got a real hit on my pride and you can get over that.
1: Yeah, you, I mean you can with, with time and grace and yes. <laughs> um, I guess Breathing, Being of, breathing. Yeah, breathing, <laughs> communicating to people that are important. You know, Jobs came back into Apple in about 96, 97. Is that, is that correct, that time frame, roughly? Yeah, he came back in July 97 and Apple at
0: that time was uh, headed towards Chapter 11, bankruptcy, because yeah. the people who had been in charge after he left thought that the goal was for us to be really another machine that looked like everyone else's machine. And I took the role later in 97, so about three months after he came back, and I knew the products were terrible at that time. Um, I didn't realise how bad Apple was financially. I Didn't really take that into account, but it still wouldn't have mattered to me. And, you know, he called a meeting, a worldwide meeting, got everyone who was heading up a country um, as well as key players all over the place. So he had 100 people in the room and he said, I just want you to know I'm very aware that the system software has got huge problems The hardware has huge problems. I mean, he just said the products are and put in a few expletives. (laughs) But he said it's going to take us nine months to bring a new exciting product to market and you're just going to have to survive for that nine months. And so the fact that he was honest It's a bit like when you watch Jacinda Ardern on the TV talking about the situation in her country. You come away from the end of her conversation always thinking, she's so honest. She tells people how it really is and, you know, there's no fluff, no spin. This is where we're at. You know, we're taking away all the conditions now. We're still holding down the borders And we may have to go back into a lockdown, but right at the moment, as long as you stay within New Zealand, you can do anything you like again. You know, and she's just matter of fact about it. And so she had people who uh, weren't all up in arms. And the same thing after that dreadful massacre. She was so honest. These people were New Zealanders. And this is not how we behave. I mean, shes you just watch her speak and you think, wow, she actually means that. So, you know, I felt that way about jobs. He said, we've got to fix up our operating system, we've got to fix up our hardware, and it's going to take
1: us a while. So, you know, I was quite happy to be there. So when you're thinking of your style of leadership that obviously you know, is definitely changing and evolving, you know, as you get older with more experiences that you have, you know, at what point in your career did you start to have this increased appetite to put attention on, you know, diversity and inclusion? Was it once you kind of got to the MD role at Apple?
0: Well, I was aware of it when I was within Apple. And I think it would be fair to say that I was mentored to a number of women and, bearing in mind we didn't have masses of them. I think I am naturally kind of gender blind. I'm interested in people who do their job, have got ideas, are prepared to speak up. You know, I am very interested and always have been interested in people and how they operate. So, but I wasn't really as aware that most industries did not have women in senior positions. I mean, IT was still hiring people because they'd graduated in computer science. Um, So I knew IT was blokey. I mean, going through university, doing maths and stats, it was blokey. I hung out with a lot of the engineers. So I was quite used to a blokey way of things happening. But it wasn't until I came out of Apple that I realised this blokiness wasn't just within IT, it was everywhere and that Australia was behind so many other countries. I mean, I expected us to be behind the US, but I didn't expect us to be behind the UK, New Zealand and South Africa. If you look at the five major English-speaking countries, We are bottom of the barrel in terms of women in senior positions and at that stage, of course, we'd never had a female prime minister. I don't think we'd had a female um, governor general. I don't think we'd had a female premier in New South Wales. We'd had Joan Curno. but Mm. I really started to look into the fact that this inequality within gender was extraordinary and you can extend that in this day and age that the inequality in terms of racial heritage, gender, all of these things, Australia really isn't high on the list of great, great supporters. I mean, if you're a woman, you probably have to apply for an extra 20% of roles to get a job. If you have a heritage of Asian heritage, it's probably about 30% or 40% more. If you are Middle Eastern, it's probably 50 or 60% more. And if you are Indigenous, I believe that's the highest. So these people every day, in every way are affected by the fact that Australia has not got over difference. We are not supportive of diversity and I work with a number of people now who have diverse heritage. They may have been born and raised in Australia, but people look and it's either their name or their face or whatever. And it makes it more difficult for them. And so I do some work in that space. Uh, I was very proud that last year I followed through. I'm an ambassador for uh, Honour Women, getting more women to get more Australia Day and Queen's Birthday awards. And one of the women I had put forward was given an award on Australia Day And not only that, I've encouraged three or four other people to put forward people for awards, so put forward women for awards. So, you know, we've got to chomp off all these things. I'm also involved with Women for Election, encouraging more women to stand for election.
1: And, of course, that's also a challenging thing for them. So... When you, when you encourage these women, what's the kind of role that you play in encouragement?
0: Uh, it's normally around coffees and what, what are the barriers you're meeting and how are you going about this? Or the other thing that I would say is a strength of mine is I'm a connector. So when someone comes to me either because they're looking to change a role or what have you, I'll put them in touch with other people so that they get a range of perspectives on how they might go about it. So I have a significant network of people who care about this.
1: It, we, we certainly need more people taking this advocacy role in connecting and, and promotion, not just in gender equality, but obviously cultural and heritage diversity as well. You know before when you said that when you're at Apple you weren't you kind of put down the gender Um, or the lack of equality in it because there's less women who are doing computer science at university, so there's less going through the funnel. So there's just more men who are suitable for the roles and you didn't think that that was kind of across the board. Now that you've had your time again, do you wish there were some things that you did when you were MD at Apple that could have encouraged that flow of women coming through that space earlier? I probably could have been more
0: forward in taking speaking engagements. I mean, Apple was full on. Our offices were at French's Forest. So if I wanted to do presentations and things, it was a matter normally of coming into town, so that would be half a day. So, yes, there are things I could have done. I think I did a lot within Apple. I did a fair amount in education and more broadly across IT but no I wasn't really involved in a number of the other things.
1: What What advice do you give leaders within organisations who are, obviously have very high demands of workflow and stresses? How do you um, advise them that they can take a role and a position on, you know, gender diversity and and cultural diversity?
0: Well, their first step is to do it within their own organisation. So I suggest to them things like every time they stand up to speak to their staff, what is their message about gender equality? What is their message about pay equality? What is their message about supporting diversity so i think that is something that they can do that is really a part of their job because if they don't support that they're wasting 50 percent of the population you know it's not that you want to push men down but it's just there are a lot of women and people of different ethnicity who are very talented And if you are really only giving jobs for the boys, if you're only tapping on the shoulder when a position comes due, if you're just taking your mates or the mates of mates, you're bound to employ more and more men. So you've got to break away from this idea of the tap on the shoulder for the next job. And in Australia we were very well known that our board positions were a tap on the shoulder, They the metrics were some years ago that two-thirds of board positions were given based on a tap on the shoulder. Mm. And people tap on the shoulder, other people, they've had beers with, they've gone to 40 with. They've, you know, they're, they're probably less likely to see the women who might have the right skills. So unless you literally stop and say no these are the skills we need for our board or these are the skills we need for our executive team you're probably just going to end up with more pale stale male people being promoted
1: I mean and what could be so what can be also compelling is the research behind diversity and you're probably far more aware of it than me but do, you know, do you have some studies or researchers that you kind of um direct people to when you're trying to tell them of the benefits of diversity. Not just we should be doing it, but it's actually a beneficial for efficiency, productivity, you know, profitability for that organization?
0: So the chief executive women has been very focused on getting that research done and out. And they've worked with Bain, who's very good at research. And, yes, there are a number of papers about why diversity matters. Simple things like when you go to market, if all of your applicants or 90% of the applicants are male, maybe there's something about the way you went to market that is making that role not appealing to women. Hmm. In IT, for instance... Women are still inclined to self-exclude if they didn't do computer science, and yet quite a small percentage of roles in IT require a computer science degree. In fact, I would say in Apple in Australia, it's probably no more than 10 or 15 percent but yet, women self exclude because they say, "Oh, I don't have a good computer understanding,"
1: which is a which is a very fair assumption um, to probably have, and it does require education to, or awareness to know that that's not the case.
0: Yeah, I mean, it starts very young with our society kind of implying girls aren't good at maths, and being good at maths it, it isn't given necessarily the same imprimatur as being good in the classics or the you know english languages i went to north sydney girls high and just about all the awards at that time went to people who were excelling in languages or english or music you know nice female attributes and you know doing maths and science I was in the first year where they offered physics and chemistry separately at North Sydney Girls without having to walk down to North Sydney Boys for the classes. Yeah. I often get asked what do I say when people tell me I'm aggressive and I said well I copped that a fair number of times and I say if you I have goals, I want to achieve goals. If there are barriers in the way, I look for ways around it. If you want to call it aggressive, fine, but I call it assertive and I would ask you, would you call a male in the same situation aggressive
1: Mm. or would
0: you call him a go-getter or would you call him, you know, showing leadership potential?
1: Yeah, it's why I tapped onto that softening thing that we talked about before because, you know, I think we always need to make sure that the way we communicate to others is, you know, we we communicate in a way that's going to have the desired effect while still being true to who we are. So if we have to completely change our style in a way to appease other people, then maybe that's not a great thing. We also have to guide the way of, you know, a strong woman who, you know, maybe might be a little bit abrupt, but doesn't mean that a a woman who's successful can't show, you know, kindness and grace while still being direct and focused on success and metrics and efficiency. I think it's a blending of different personality skill sets. It's funny, isn't it? We have
0: to blend and think about it. And men don't.
1: Yeah. and, And I've really struggled with it because when we hear another female's journey, you know, going through the corporate, you know, ladder. Whilst at the same time you have, you know, two young boys and I kept coming into my mind, so when did you transfer from working part-time to full-time? And I can't help but keep thinking, how did you manage, you know, the role as a mother at the same time as working in a pretty demanding corporate role where there's times where your gender is meaning that you're being treated differently than everyone else in the workplace, particularly when you're in such a male-dominated arena? So when I went back to work full-time, And Pete was, we argue about this,
0: three or four, (laughs) something like that, four, maybe he was five. Uh, We paid for a full time live in housekeeper. And I used to say, you know, almost all of my salary went on this. And now I always say, Bill and I would have spent half of our combined salary on this because we believed it was important. So there are all these messages for women to give and I used to skip out, you know, athletics wasn't high on their list, but I'd skip out for, you know, Pete's Cadet thing. So I'd skip out for swimming carnivals. I'd be there. So you make a balance. And one of the really positive things is that there are a lot more men that want to be involved. And what we've had with isolation is giving everyone a chance to work flexibly, whereas before for many men they were really concerned to ask if they could work flexibly because that would be like a career dead end. Well, you're obviously not keen on your career because you're more than happy to work flexibly. And I would say if we want our next generation of Australians coming through, the involvement of a mother and father or two parents is vitally important. Every caring adult they have who gives up time to be a part of their life journey will produce, is likely to produce better citizens
1: You obviously do a lot of work with Explore for Success, you know, in the consultancy space with a variety of, well, members from different industries. Mm -hmm. Which industries have you noticed, um, you know, have some of the greatest gaps in diversity and, and what are some of the standout industries?
0: So, you know, salary gap and also the whole thing of alpha males and mateship, I think is very well entrenched in law and finance absolutely. You get some of it in you know the engineering, the construction etc but what I find is once a woman's skill set is respected they get a really fair go in those industries. They might still feel isolated and lonely but they'll probably get the opportunities. Mm. Um, then you have healthcare where they're kind of 80 or 90% female but still the top echelon is male and it's like why is this so? There are no clear industries that are great. There are organisations that try really hard. But I don't think anyone's got it down pat. But, for instance, there was a group, Tower Tower Insurance, I think it is, the CEO had always thought they didn't have a salary gap and then they did the metrics. And getting the metrics is always important for CEOs and executive teams that, They get metrics for how their business is going. They need metrics on how they're going on these things. And he looked at it and they had a gap and he said, right, that's it. I'm allocating a section of budget and as of next month, that gap is going away. And he just adjusted all the women's salaries up. Now, a lot of companies try and do it by saying, oh, yes, we'll do a bit more for women this year and you know, it means men get a bit less. I thought it was really powerful that he just came out and said it's unfair, I'm going to fix it and then we'll move on from there. You know, it's kind of like you just have to stop and fix it.
1: Yeah, I, I love it when you know some someone does it with such ease and goes, "Well, this is wrong. What, like, why make a gradual progression to make this better? Like, let's just make it better. Why do we have to have a two thousand and you know twenty five objective? You know, can this possibly happen quicker? Particularly when it's what it should be."
0: Yes, I mean when you see something that is wrong, fixing it over longer term really isn't fair because those people who have been wronged, that is cumulative for them. I found out I was chronically underpaid when I took over the role as MD, um, which made me really annoyed because it meant for over 10 years I'd been chronically underpaid. So did Apple really owe me hundreds of thousands of dollars because I was underpaid. If you're responsible for half the revenue, shouldn't you be being paid the same amount? And sometimes women say, I just love the job so much, I don't care about the pay. And I say, well, think of it differently. If you don't get paid what you're worth, next time you go for a promotion, people will assume people paid more, have more skills. That's the first thing. Secondly, people in your staff will know that their salary is capped by your salary, so why wouldn't they try and transfer to somewhere where they can get more salary because the boss of that division is paid more highly? I mean, you have to fight for to be paid to market. You can't just let it ride as a woman. And I say, if you really hate money that much, give it to a charity.
1: How do you suggest people go about um, trying to get pay parity?
0: Well, the first thing you have to know is exactly what your situation is. And you can normally get a pretty good view by going to a headhunter. And, of course, women say, I couldn't go to a headhunter. People would think I'm changing jobs. And I say, well, why don't you ask one of the men around you, do they ever go and meet a headhunter just to find out what's going on? And, of course, the answer is yes. They go and talk to someone just just to see how the market is, and those headhunters will tell you whether you paid to market or not. The other thing men do is, regardless of what they might have signed, do they share what they're earning? Uh, maybe not an exact dollar figure, but, you know, how are you going if you hit the this level yet or have you got that or, you know, they, they know what their friends are making. Yeah. Women often don't. And so they go in on a weak platform to talk about money and if you're really feeling uncomfortable and you found out you are not paid to market, go in and ask your leader... Can you look me in the eye and tell me you believe I'm paid to market? And, you know, can you please go and talk to HR? Because from the information I've got, I'm not. So you're not saying I'll leave if you don't give me more money. You're not saying you're not paying me enough. You're saying, wait a second, I think my pay package is out of alignment. And, of course, the biggest difference is bonuses. Men, even if you've got salary equality for the base package, normally the bonuses are skewed incredibly towards the men who, of course, every month, every time they're asked, I'm doing a fabulous job. Can you believe I got that deal over the line? Can you believe what we've achieved? And the women are sitting there quietly with their hands in their lap. I wonder what my bonus will be
1: again it comes down to how we choose to communicate about what we're doing Mm -hmm.
0: and we have to be braver if we want to operate in the business environment women have to be braver and once you've done it the first time it'll be less uncomfortable the second time
1: yeah I mean just to go on a slightly more personal note um you know, you made mention to it before, but, you know, after years of working with, you know, Apple as it was kind of struggling, you've reached the top of the business and then you get breast cancer. What was that period of time like for you and your family? So I went in for my
0: annual checkup and came out pretty sure that I had breast cancer. So it wasn't like I found a lump and then I was nervous until I got it checked. It was in a position that is not easy to feel. And so my whole life changed. So I had to call my executive assistant. I was in no no mood to go back to work at that stage. And I just called and I said, you're just going to have to cancel every appointment I've got today because it looks like I've got breast cancer and the following morning I found out it was true and because they'd taken a biopsy. And therein started a really challenging and fascinating time. So I'd been quite, quite involved, obviously, with the staff, with our Apple resellers out in the marketplace, with the press, in PR, And, you know, I was kind of in the press and talking about release of products and on a regular basis. So I had to make a decision, was I going to try and cover it up, which a number of women do try and do, or was I just going to say, this is the scene and, you know, you're not going to see me that much. But I was never harassed by the press about having disappeared because they knew why I'd disappeared. Mm. And then we agreed with my marketing director that we would job share because I couldn't be there every day. I could be around some of the days. In the end, I basically worked a lot of the mornings except a few days after chemo. But it worked really, really well. And we made it work because both of us wanted it to work and the whole exec team wanted it to work. So when people say to me, you can't job share, I say, what about the head of Apple Australia? Could you do that job that way? And most people say, oh, no, no. And I say, well, I did for nearly a year. And I got to the end of the time and i have been working part-time and the whole thing had worked really well. But... I thought either, like after the last chemo, a couple of weeks later when I was starting to feel better, either you have to come back and do the full job or else you have to get out. And in the end I decided that, although they tell you stress isn't the factor, I decided that I, if I had a short lifespan left, there were things I wanted to do. And I'd already been managing director for four years. Would it really make a difference if I had five years? And how would I feel if it came back and it's like, oh, it's come back again and I really should have done something differently? Uh, So I made the decision. I would say it was a clinical head decision and there was no way of doing it halfway. It was step out of Apple and quit. And it was probably the hardest decision I've ever made because late September I got employer of the year. October I was diagnosed with breast cancer. But I just thought I've got to, I've got to step out because I wouldn't forgive myself if it came back and I hadn't tried everything. So it was very, very emotional I finished up at the end of 2001 and for the first six months of 2002 really I just looked after myself looked after my health and wondered what on earth I was going to do because I wasn't that old then Um, I was 53 and I you know as a woman you've taken some years out of your career I couldn't see that I was ready to be at the end of my career So, you know, it was really, really difficult six months. And then I came up with this idea, as I said, for explore. And then that's kept me busy for another kind of 18 years. We started in 2002. So it's now 18 years. Uh, Nearly two years ago now, I stepped down as. CEO I put in a CEO who'd been working within Explore for some years and I'm now the f- founder and owner of Explore but she runs all the day-to-day business and it's been a fabulous success but it then left me in the same situation again <laughs> of well what matters now so I'm really the equality is really important to me including the racial heritage equality but also climate change. I I just want to see Australia pick up its game in that area.
1: You know, I want to thank you for sharing so much about your experiences with breast cancer and not just how challenging the experience was to have breast cancer and, and the treatment and the recovery, but also that intersection with your identity uh, as a professional in the corporate arena. And I think You know, not just in this instance when you had breast cancer. I think many aspects of your career have shown that you have pivoted based on assessing your changing values. And I think as life evolves, that is something critical that we all do. And when we make a pivot in our life, whether it's our career or our personal, you know, journey, that is not an easy thing to do. The decision can be incredibly challenging and the transition from what we Do know to what we don't know can be even harder. But I think you have also showcased throughout this conversation and throughout your life that in every new thing that we do, we bring the experiences of our past. You know, you haven't just worked in in the corporate arena. You've supported philanthropic organisations. You've been a speaker, a writer. The list really goes on to where your impact has been, and I have no doubt that you will continue advocating in what you do in the future. Uh, if I go back just ever so slightly, I, I do want to give credit to to what you say in terms of how you use the points of energy that you hold. And I think it's so important for women. Uh, and the focus of this conversation has been on to women how to best support ourselves professionally, but also personally, and to really do a, you know, mental stock take um, at different points in our lives of are we using our time in the space that is the most important to us? Absolutely. And for many women, that
0: means making sure there's a piece of the pie for you personally, not just you as a mum, but you personally. And for a lot of women, that's the first bit that gets lost. Yes, (laughs) Yes,
1: <laughs> it does. And maybe not just a sliver of the pie, but we should give ourselves a decent slice. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Oh, Diana, it's been it's been an absolute privilege to be able to have time to, to speak to you. You've got a wealth of experience in so many different areas um, that just gives insights that I think are incredibly valuable for people to hear. So, you know, thank you for giving me so much of your time. Not a problem at all.
0: It's such a joy having read all your background, sam and of course Pete <laughs> lets me know about sam and walesy uh, <laughs> it's a great joy for me to have someone who's just fabulous in their own right to really just sit and chat with it's very nice for me as well thank you
1: well thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of the sam gash podcast now, I know many people from Melbourne check out this podcast and like me, we are all in lockdown right now. Um, all around the world, everyone is facing you know, this global pandemic differently, but I do want to send my, my thoughts to everyone who might be doing a little bit tough right now. Uh, day by day, that's kind of all we can focus on right now, creating daily rituals, moving when we can in a safe way and knowing that if we are in this together, we are likely to be far better thinking of you, hoping you are happy, safe and well, wherever you are in the world and look forward to connecting again with the next episode.